I'd like to welcome everybody to the House of Bricks podcast, where we teach people to use life's experiences for them and not carry them with them and let them weigh them down. And so we've had some incredible guests already, and I'm really excited to introduce our guest today, someone I've known for the last 13 years, and he's not a guy that's chasing accolades, but I have to tell people, Josh, who they're listening to. And so where to start, right? I could probably spend the whole podcast talking about some of your accomplishments from being a New York Times bestseller to a multi-time entrepreneur to, I think, the world's number one inspirational speaker, (laughs) empowering other entrepreneurs and also running a venture fund. So Josh Linkner, welcome to the show. Adam, thanks so much. Great to be with you. And so, uh, as I mentioned previously, so the purpose of the House of Bricks podcast is to inspire people to use life's experiences for them. And I know being an entrepreneur and the, the many businesses that you've started and also coaching and leading other entrepreneurs, investing in them. I know you've made an investment in me personally. Tell us some of the experiences that you've had, uh, probably start early on in your career. Uh, I know you're a musician as well. So tell us a little bit about you. Well, you're so right. I mean, the whole premise that that we are the amalgamation of our experiences, both good and bad. And actually, some of the big, biggest character leaps forward often come through those periods of adversity, not the periods of, of success. But you're right. I started my career as a jazz guitarist. Uh, I was born in the city of Detroit. And, and at age 13, I started sneaking into jazz clubs and, and trying to sit in, put myself to college playing music. I didn't come from a, you know, a very well, you know, overly wealthy family. And, um, and, and I've been playing ever since. So first and foremost, I kind of consider myself a jazz musician. And ironically, that sounds like a completely unrelated thing to business. But when you think about what we're facing today in business, we're in a world of ambiguity and volatility. There's a lot of unknowns. It's constant change. And that's exactly what we do when we play jazz. You know, you're sort of responding to, to changing circumstances. You're adapting. You're collaborating with fellow colleagues. You're, you're, you're co-creating stuff. You're bouncing back from adversity. So frankly, jazz was my biggest teacher in, in business. Uh, I took that experience and started a company at age 20. And funny enough, I'd never taken a business course. I didn't know business. I just knew jazz. But in jazz, you kind of figure stuff out. You use your creativity and, and, and tenacity and, and figure things out. And that, that's what I did my first company at age 20. And here we are uh, 33 years later, five companies, 10,000 jobs created, bought and sold, organizations, you know, on and on. So um, ran two venture capital firms, uh, but really I can get more into detail, whatever you want, but it get for me, it, it gets back to jazz. I still play regularly. I've played over a thousand concerts uh, over the last now 40 years. So, yeah, I mean, that was, that was a great summary. So, you know, take us back. So you're, are you skipping school? Are you, you know, going in, you know, in late? I mean, how are you getting into these jazz clubs at 13 years old? Well, I was pretty, you know, I, I fell in love with music and it was this beautiful, to me anyway, you know, a platform for, for creative expression and risk taking. And it just, it, it was challenging and I just loved it. And by the way, I, I will say that, you know, people, I've been studying human creativity now for many years and people often think, well, I'm not creative because I don't play an instrument or I'm not creative because I can't paint or dance. And, and the truth is we can all find our creative outlet. Mine happened to be music, but someone else's might be sales. Someone else's might be customer service or accounting or legal. So we can find opportunities to express creativity truly in any, any area of business and life. But yeah, for me, I, I got pretty disciplined about it. I would, I would skip going out with my friends so I could practice. I, you know, I, I was really, you know, I was really focused and, and working hard 
toward what I desired, which is, you know, being able to fully express myself musically. And yeah, I would sneak in to clubs with, you know, I, I started playing in a wedding band. I, I got connected to a blues band and I just got really into music. And when you're really into something, when you're passionate about it, you do whatever it takes to play. Like when I was in school, I first started in, in Boston, I would take three subways and a bus and carry all my gear on. And it would cost me like $30 to get there. They'd pay me 10 bucks and a chicken dinner to play, but I didn't care. I did whatever it took to get, you know, get practice and get exposure. And so I think that was one of the early lessons that, that transferred to entrepreneurship is that, you know, you have to, you have to build your chops. You have to build into your expertise before you can truly monetize it. So for me, I'm not creative in terms of music, very musically, you know, challenged, so to speak. But I did find similarities in athletics, right? Being an athlete, being in the team environment. For people that aren't creative, how do they get started on their entrepreneurial journey? I mean, does every entrepreneur have to invent something new? Or can you take something that's out in the market and, and do it in a better way? So uh, first, one thing I'll challenge you on, my friend, because I've known you for a long time, is I think you're wildly creative. You know, you make express your creativity on the basketball court or when you're building companies or when you're raising your beautiful family. And I know you're a terrific dad and, and husband. And so I think that there are opportunities to express creativity in non-traditional ways. It doesn't have to be doing interpretive dance or, or painting oil on canvas. So, and, and I would just bring that up, not only because I, I think highly of you, but I think many people listening don't recognize the amount of creativity that they have and they can apply it again in non-traditional ways. So as an entrepreneur, I do think you need some creativity because you're always navigating challenges and setbacks. It's sort of a blood sport. You know, you, I would say you're not an entrepreneur until you, until you got punched in the face and got knocked down. That's the, then, then the entrepreneurial journey begins. But um, again, it doesn't mean you have to invent some crazy new thing, you know, cure to cancer or, or be able to write code. Your, your creativity might be taking an existing business model and finding a better way to serve customers or reduce costs or hire talented people. So I do think it requires creativity, but the kind that we all have, I mean, all of us, and it requires this sort of tenacity and willingness to, to adapt to changing conditions, coupled with a, an undying commitment to getting to the other side of the, the challenge, no matter what. So I'll take on your challenge for creative dance. And maybe for our next episode, I'll, I'll have some <laughs> clips of me doing creative dance. So I'm not sure if you jumped straight into E-Prize, but that's kind of the first business that I know of. I think you had a partner in that business as well. How did you get into E-Prize? And were you guys 50-50 partners? Because I know our listeners out there you know, are always looking to decide, you know, what business do I go in? Do I raise capital? Should I have my partner? You know, what the split is. So help us a little bit, you know, just to understand kind of how you got started in E-Prize and what the relationship was. Yeah. So E-Prize was actually my third company. I started a company at age 20 called Gator Computer Systems because I was studying at the University of Florida at the time. And, and again, I didn't know what I was doing, but I started building computers in my uh, college apartment. I was a little bit of a tech nerd and would sell them on campus as a completed system. Eventually, I took a year off college and sort of built up this, this business a bit. I did go to college. That was your previous question. Although I should say I attended, but barely. I mean, I was running this company in the middle of the day and playing jazz gigs at night and barely showing up to class. I somehow managed to squeak on through, but I do have a college, a college degree, although I should have probably applied more, more effort to that. Um, yeah, so my first company, I just had this idea, like at the time you couldn't buy a discount computer easily. You couldn't go to Best Buy. And I realized that I could mail order individual components, assemble them in my apartment and sell them at a profit. And, and by the way, that was an interesting idea. But the first thing that happened is I screwed it up. Like I, 
I built bad computers and I had quality issues and I couldn't sell them at the right price and I was losing money. And so I just want people to know when you look at a successful person, you sort of envision, oh, they had all the answers right away. Everything was like from the time they had the idea in the shower, they were whisked off in a limousine to fame and fortune. That is rarely the case. Usually what happens is someone has an, an idea and the minute they hit reality, it's hard. It's, you know, you have some type of setback. So I just want to encourage people, if your ride isn't going as smooth as it is in the movies, don't worry, that's natural. And that's, that's what happens to all of us. I sold that company to, to an investor group. I started another company similar in when I graduated and I was started doing a bunch of networking and, and not networking, like making friends, but computer networking for clients. And one of my suppliers liked my client base and bought me out early. So I was only in that business for 11 months. It wasn't a huge exit, but, but I learned a lot and made a little bit of money. And right then the internet starts coming around. So the internet is like, wow, what's this fanciful thing? And in 1995, I started a, an internet company and the internet company, we would build websites. And Adam, I'm not kidding. I would call on companies. And I'm like, Hey, do you have a website? And they're like, what's a website? Right. I was like, no, no. There's like 10 million people online, like 10 million. Of course, now there's billions, but right. I, I got in early. And by the way, I think one of the entrepreneurial mandates is that we, we're not just building a, a business for what, where things are, it's where things are headed. And at that time, there was no data to suggest that the internet was a good place to do business, but it didn't take a genius to figure out that everyone was going to need a website. So I started that in 95. I built it up. I sold it to a public company in 1999. And then I started ePrize. So I'm sorry, ePrize is actually my fourth company, not my third. And so by the time I started that company, I'd already gotten some reps in. And you know this for, for being such an incredible athlete that, that you don't want to you know, do your, your most important game without the practice. You know, a lot of the, right. the athletic success you've had is through practice. I got three reps in before I did a bigger company. And those weren't giant. I mean, like I made some money, but they weren't huge. But, but by the time I got to ePrize in 1999, I had already built a pretty deep reservoir of skills. And uh, the answer to your other question, I started ePrize myself. I was the sole founder. I did not have a partner. Over time, I took on some investors, but I was the, the sole founder and CEO. All right. So you started ePrize. I read, I do like to do homework. I didn't do it in high school, but I'm doing it now. Some of your accounts, you know, Josh, that you had, uh, you had Coca-Cola, you know, some of these blue chip companies. So I remember in the businesses that I've started, everyone wants to see those logos on their website, on their customer slide. Did you go after those accounts first? Or were, did you work your way up to those? Because you can spend a lot of energy going after the blue chips. And oftentimes, they work you the most on price and have the longest sales cycle where there are opportunities for the small and medium-sized clients. Well, funny enough, when I started ePrize in 1999, the stock market was soaring, everything was dot-com, you know. And so I really started going after dot-com companies that I thought were going to take over the world. Well, as we know, the dot-com crash happens, petfood.com can't pay their bills, so I had to go after the bigger companies. So I had to make a pretty significant pivot. And I, and I just re re reinforced that, you know, a lot of entrepreneurship is, is responding and adapting to change. And so I had to you know, really retool my company to go after big, bigger brands. What I did is I fought like hell to get my first one. I think it was maybe Hilton or something. And the minute I got like the teeniest little project from Hilton, my next sales call is, oh, you've probably seen our work for Hilton. You know, and so you're right. You have to, to leverage the credibility once you start, you know, getting some big clients. But I'm glad you mentioned Coke because it's also an instructive, you know, obviously House of Bricks is based on what you, your experience is. So the marquee account for any marketing company is Coca-Cola biggest brand in the world or whatever. So for years, I'm trying to get in there. Years and years and years, nothing, doors slammed in your face. You know, I was, I was persistent. 
eventually we got this teeny little project, like this little micro opening, like a thousand dollar project or something. But you know, you got to get in the, you got to crack the window. And so once I got in the window, we're working really, really hard and building and building and building. So the, the entrenched uh, person that was doing all their promotions at the time, E-Prize was, was a promotion company, was this, this company that had been around forever. And funny enough, the company is called DL Blair. They, they had an ad, in the, a print ad in the trade journals that said, a lot of things have changed since 1959. DL Blair isn't one of them. And I think they were trying to communicate stability, but we thought this was the funniest thing ever. So we photocopied it, put it all over our office, like, well, we're taking them down. You know, so it gave us something to aim for. So eventually we work our way into Coca-Cola and, and work and work and work. And, and eventually uh, the folks at DL Blair got a letter. Dear DL Blair, thank you so much for your 25 years of serving the Coca-Cola company. We are respectfully pulling out of all business with you. And we've awarded the entire Coca-Cola account to a small company in Detroit called E-Prize. And of course, we framed that, you know, they sent us a copy and we framed it and all that. But, but it, it, on the one hand, I was very proud that like, we worked hard for that. But it also, the reason we kept it for, front and center is that we can't get cocky. Like D.O. Blair was a very successful company and they eventually rested on their laurels and that was their demise. In our case, we, we took that really seriously. So we kept saying to ourselves, and that was a good exhibit A, that someday a company will come along and put us out of business. It might as well be us. Right. So we didn't get cocky from that letter. It was the opposite. We got hungry from that letter. We want to say that like, we're not getting a letter like that. And if anyone, you know, Coca-Cola sent in the letter, we better be the source of disruption rather than having it thrust upon us. No, and that's great. And that was actually something I was going to ask you. So uh, like I said, I've known you for 13, 14 years. And when I meet you, you have a confidence about you, like the story that you just told us but you balance it very well with not being arrogant. You've accomplished a lot, writing books, speaking, exiting businesses, investing in startups. How did you develop that characteristic? Well, thanks, man. And I think you're another you know, beautiful example of that. You know, you've achieved remarkable success in multiple domains and you're heart forward and, and humble and sincere and kind and exhibit generosity. And, and that's one of the reasons I think, not only I, but I think so many people love you. For me, it's, it's probably my biggest pet peeve is when people present and they show up with arrogance, they're condescending. And, and like, why, why do you do that? I mean, to me, if, if you have your own, I, I think quiet confidence instead of boastfulness is a way better vibe. And I don't do it as an act, but like, for me, I'm always learning. I've got tons of flaws. I screw stuff up all the time. I'm a moron. Just ask my wife, you know, like, like we're all doing life and business and doing our best. And I, I screw things up. And so, so I have no business being arrogant or cocky about anything. I've learned a couple things and I like to share what I've learned to help other people, but I, I'm still learning and growing. And, and to me, that, that sort of white belt attitude is how people continue to grow and thrive. The minute you start to say, oh, I'm a master, I've learned all the lessons, you know, look at me. To me, that's the beginning of the end. Right. And is that something you developed over time? I know I've evolved as a leader, definitely from my early 20s to starting making money, you know, coming out of Rock Financial, Rocket Mortgage, then starting my own business. And, you know, you, you had kind of an iron fit. Well, I say you, I led with an iron fist and you can only get people so far with that type of, of leadership and also how you run your own life. Was that something you've developed over time or were you always carrying these types of characteristics? You know, I, I think I, I'm maybe just a little oversensitive. So I think when people say harsh things to me, it hits me in the heart. I don't like it. I'm sure nobody likes it, but I, I maybe I have thin skin instead of thick skin. And so, but, but knowing how it feels when someone is berating me or being arrogant, I just try to think like, why would I want someone else to feel that way? You know? Right. And so I, I think early on, I, I just, just from my own experiences, because we all experience, you know, harshness and difficulty and, 
I thought, wouldn't it be nicer to make people feel good instead of bad? Um, but the other thing I'll say back to jazz is that you learn a lot in jazz. So like jazz is more about listening, at least as much about listening as it is playing. So, you know, and, which requires, you know, empathy and trying to understand how someone's feeling. So let's say you're playing a saxophone solo and I'm playing guitar. In that moment, my job is to support you and make you shine, not me to shine. And so I might hear you playing uh, a C sharp. And so I might try to voice a chord with a C sharp on top to make your C sharp sound even better. And so you're really trying to tune in to what other people are doing and how they're feeling and how you can help support them. And then when it's my turn to solo, you know, you, you would do that for me. And so I think that just the mere act of collaboration that happens in real time during jazz was also an instructive uh, tutor, really, in, in helping to develop skills of listening and empathy. That's a great summary. And so back to E-Prize, so now we're kind of moving around a little bit, but you've accomplished a lot and it's there's a lot of chapters to the story. And so it's one thing to start a business. It's another thing to scale it. You brought on a partner, you brought on outside capital, and then you're actually able to exit the business. And so you mentioned before, and that's really what this podcast is all about, is for our listeners to find meaning and fulfillment during the journey. And a lot of people set their goals and defer happiness to the exit or whatever it is they're trying to accomplish. A lot of times when you get there, in fact, most of the time, when you reach that pinnacle, the dopamine release is a lot less than the actual process of going through it. So when you exited your company, was it all that you thought it would be? And did you experience any darkness or kind of downside after that because you've wrapped up a lot of your identity in that process? Great question. For me, I think you're right. As an entrepreneur, you're thinking about this exit where you're like your end of the rainbow and, and everybody's tan and fit and the birds are chirping, you know, and all that. And, and, and that, that is a bit of a, of a false, a false God. I think that, you know, I, I was proud of the exit. I mean, we, we made, you know, a good amount of money for you know, our investors and everything. And, and I did pretty well, but it wasn't the, this panacea that I think most people are envisioning. For me, I didn't have the aftershock because I, I was sort of ready to take on the next chapter. Right, right after coming out of E-Prize, I started uh, Detroit Venture Partners with uh, two notable partners, Dan Gilbert and Brian Hermelin. And so I was pretty excited about my next chapter. So I wasn't so, I mean, I was proud of what we built, but I wasn't like longing for the good old days because I was busy creating the next one. Some people are very past oriented. You know, they spend a lot of time thinking about regret or, you know, or even past accomplishments. I really let go of the past for good and bad, probably, but, but I'm always thinking about what's next. And so I was able to, to let go of that. I'll tell you though, real quickly, what was more moving and fulfilling than, you know, getting a wire transfer at the end was um, the impact that I made along the way. You know, I named uh, my current venture fund, and you know this, Adam, uh, Mudita Venture Partners, M-U-D-I-T-A. Mudita is a Sanskrit term, which means taking joy in other people's success. So like Adam, when I see you blossoming as a leader and a podcast host, all these things, I'm like, I'm so deeply happy for you. That gives me more joy than, than some, you know, external marker. And so as I was building ePrize, when we, we had someone come into my office and said, hey, Josh, I've been at this company for two years. You might not even know my first name. I was the, the first person to go to college in my family. And because of this job, I just bought my first house. That gave me more fulfillment than, than you know, signing the documents when we sold the company. Right. You moved right into Detroit Venture Partners. And again, you've changed, I don't want to call it change directions, but you've had success in a lot of different directions in life, business investment, music, being an author, going from an entrepreneur, it was your fourth business. Now you're trying to determine 
what other entrepreneurs that you're going to invest in. So totally different hat you're wearing because as the entrepreneur, you're in control. You have the confidence in your skills. And of course, as an investor, you can do your homework. But at the end of the day, you're not the one closing the deals. You're not driving the train. How did you make that transition? Totally different mindset. It really is a different mindset because you're not just putting, you know, everything you have into one company, you're spreading it out across many. The best way to describe that actually, Adam, is that you're going from being a parent where everything stops with you. And if the baby's thrown up at night, you got to deal with it to being a grandparent where you're, you know, kind of advising the entrepreneur, AKA the parent, but you're not in the trenches at two in the morning. You're, you're not the one they call when the servers go down, uh, but you're spreading your strategic capacity across multiple companies. And in our case, we tried to be very active investors. You know, for some, venture capital is, you know, find good entrepreneurs, find good deals, and your work ends once you make the investment. For us, our work begin, began once, once you made the investment. So it's about really being active participants and helping those entrepreneurs, not doing the job for them, but, but helping them, and trying to apply some of the lessons and hard-fought lessons that we, that we had along the way, many of the mistakes that we made, help those entrepreneurs avoid those mistakes and accelerate growth. But you're right, it was, it was an adjustment and a different mindset. But also very fulfilling, you know, when, when a company uh, struggles, you, you feel it, of course, in your heart, but, but once it wins, you know, like that's, that's so fulfilling. Back to this notion of mudita, um, taking joy in other people's success, a venture capital investor should be filled with mudita if they're successful. So if our listeners are out there and they've started a business, when is the right time? Let me ask a different question. So for our listeners that are out there that currently have a business and they're trying to raise capital, what does a venture fund look for in a business? And because I know you're seeing hundreds of decks a month, probably. What's your selection process? So just quick disclaimer, different venture firms have different selection criteria. So I can, I can share mine, but, but it's not like the you know, end all be all. For us, you know, we look at a number of different factors. First thing, if you triage an inbound deal is, you know, is it on thesis uh, to our fund? So we invest in early stage software companies that are generally B2B, not consumer companies, and that are post-revenue and pre-growth spurt. So if someone came with like a medical device, it could be the greatest company in the world. It just, that's not our focus. So we would pass on it, not because they're a bad company or a bad entrepreneur, it's just not our thing. If someone came to me and said, I have a consumer app and I need $100 million, again, could be awesome, but it's just not our thing. So I think the first thing a venture firm does is does a match to say, hey, we have an investment thesis. Does this entrepreneur and their company match our investment thesis? Then let's just say it does. You look at a number of factors, or at least I do. You know, we kind of like to say, you know, the jockey, the horse, and the race. Okay. So if you think about the jockey, that that's the entrepreneur and the team. And it's not, we look for different things. So it's not, you know, is the person larger than life? And do they look like Steve Jobs? It's more like, do they have that, back to that quiet humility and confidence? Have they proven that they can execute? Are they open-minded? Are they willing to share success with others? Are they coachable? And so those are the things that we look for in the, in the, in the leadership and the team. Are they creative? Are they, are they adaptable? Do they de- demonstrate tenacity and follow through? Then the horse, quote unquote, is the, the business itself. And we say, okay, is the technology good? Does it solve a real need? Is there a, a competitive advantage or a moat that could be built around the competitive advantage? How much capital is it going to take to get there? How's it going so far? Do they have a good product market fit? So you're really examining, you know, quote unquote, the horse is, is the business and the tech that, that they're presenting. And then the race, you can remember, remember uh, jockey horse race, the race is the external market conditions. Is it a big market or a small market? Is it a growing market or a shrinking market? Is it highly competitive or do we have a chance to get to the top of the field? And so we look at, it's a multidimensional analysis looking at the team, of course, the, the operators, the business itself, 
and, and the market in which they're competing. And so you gave those in a specific order. Are any of those more important than the other? How important is previous success? Because that is a common thing that I do here in the investment world. We're betting the jockey, not the horse. So are those weighted in any certain way? Or it's the combination? Or is it on a case-by-case basis? Great question. We have like this whole quantitative analysis tool. It's pretty funny. We call it the FYI, which sounds really benign. But for us, when we make an investment, our, my partners and I, we have this saying, if it's not an F, yes, it's a no. So FYI stands for F, yes, index. I, I'll be polite today. I won't say the whole word. But yeah. so for us, we really do look at all three of those factors. But if I had to weight them, I would weight the operator, the people. It's really funny, man. I, I made uh, Detroit Venture Partners. I made two investments almost at the same time. And they were really similar. They were both $600,000. I remember it very clearly. Investment one we had an A-level entrepreneur. It was like a C-level idea. Investment two, we had an A idea and like a C-level team. And like clockwork, the, the A person figures out how to make their C idea an A idea, and it became a top-performing investment in our fund. Like clockwork, the other one, the C team managed to squander their opportunity and blow up their A idea, and we lost everything. It was that start. One became like a star of our portfolio. The other one, I lost every dime of my investment. So I do tend to wait the person over the over the, the deal, but ideally you want to have enthusiasm across all three dimensions. And so previously you had said something that I wanted to touch on. So during the fundraising process, you can go to one VC and they give you feedback. Hey, you're too far along. We only invest in early stage companies. Then you go down the street, right? And they're saying you're not far enough along. We want to track you. You need more features in the product. It's going to cost too much to build all these features. As an entrepreneur or CEO, and you're in that fundraising and capital raising process, how much do you weight the advice you get in these meetings and investment opportunities? And how much do you stay the course and kind of in what your plan is? Really thoughtful question. And there's no perfect answer to it. I think, you know, anytime you're getting constructive feedback, it's always helpful to listen. I, I think I just look at it as inputs and like it's data. Why wouldn't you want to consider someone who's successful and their opinion on it? At the same time, I do see entrepreneurs tend to overcorrect and that may not be a smart thing to do. So for example, like I like jazz music and let's say you're, you're doing a country band and my feedback to you is, hey, Adam, like you should use more really complicated and advanced chords. And that might be terrible advice. I mean, I'm biased because I'm a jazz musician. In this case, I'm, I'm projecting my bias to you. And that would, that would inherently uh, dilute the potency of your music. And so I think entrepreneurs also are artists. And at, this, at some point, you have to make artistic choices. You have to decide what feedback you're going to listen to, what feedback you're going to ignore. So again, listen to all the, all the feedback. But I wouldn't, you know, just because one person says no, doesn't mean you have to like swing the pendulum the other way and, and overcorrect. Listen to the feedback and then, then make a thoughtful, intentional decision about what, if any, of that feedback you're going to embrace. You're exactly right. There's a, there's a taste to it. Like, like someone might say you're too early. Someone might say you're too late. Exactly as you described. Doesn't mean you're too early or too late for the right investor. It just means you weren't for, for those investors. So hard part, and I try to encourage entrepreneurs to, to consider, is that instead of thinking in a judgment way, I'm good or bad. I'm successful or I'm failure. You know, th- these, are, these are things that we internalize and it hurts our soul. Just think about it as, is it in alignment or not in alignment? So if you came to my fund and pitched me a healthcare, a new drug formula to, to cure cancer, I might say it's just not in alignment with my fund. 
But so for you, don't take that as a, I'm a bad entrepreneur and this business will never succeed. It's just like, okay, that didn't align with those people's investment criteria. And I think it's a healthier way for entrepreneurs because that rejection can sting. You know, we have our identities tied up in some idea and someone says, no, that doesn't feel good. So I think the best thing I can recommend is try to separate your own personal identity from that feedback and just look at it as data. And, and then you can intentionally decide what, if any of that, that new data to embrace. I hope people are listening to this. And if you didn't take notes during that last two minutes, there's probably millions of dollars worth of advice in there that I've learned over the last 25 years. You've, again, invested in hundreds of startups, started your own companies. So people are listening that right there, having that confidence, staying the course, but also being able to receive feedback, process it, make decisions, read, react, and continue to make progress. That really is the secret to being an entrepreneur. So I know uh, we've covered your entrepreneurial background, your investment background. You also decided to write three or four books. I know I've read Disciplined Dreaming. So as an entrepreneur, being able to focus, right? You have a lot of ideas and vision but it's how to implement that vision and those dreams in a disciplined way that really separates the successful entrepreneurs from the ones that are continually chasing and looking for shiny objects and really aren't moving the needle. So talk to us a little bit about disciplined dreaming. Yeah, thanks. Um, so, you know, starting my career as a jazz musician and then becoming an entrepreneur, uh, the one thing I always thought I was pretty good at was creativity. I'm a lousy financial manager. I suck at details. I mean, believe me, I have so many flaws, but I was always pretty creative. And um, I thought in jazz, there's actually a process to bring out creativity. It isn't like some guy plugs or, or, or girl plugs plugs their heart into, into God, which translates through their instrument. It's not like divine. It's, there's actually you know, a process. There's an approach. So I wanted to write a book that helped business people cultivate creativity, you know, a disciplined way to bring the imagination out, not for the fun of it, but to drive better outcomes. And so Discipline Dreaming was my first book, it was a proven model to drive breakthrough creativity. I've since written three others, and all on that same topic is how do you sort of tap into this amazing gift that all humans have of creativity and ingenuity and inventive thinking and, and creative problem solving. And it's not a book about how do you become an artist? It's a book about how do you apply those principles to drive better outcomes in your business and your life. And uh, that, it's been a wonderful process, you know, both, both writing, you know, when, when you try to master something, the best thing they always say is try to teach it. And so you, you got to get your thoughts pretty well organized. And then, and then it's been a beautiful gift to share those ideas and frameworks and tools with uh, thousands of audiences around the world. And knowing that you're making a difference in their lives and their, and their businesses, uh, it's, it's, it's intrinsically very rewarding. What makes entrepreneurs entrepreneurs is having ideas. It's wanting to be disruptive. Are there a couple things. And I, I encourage everyone to go out and read the book, purchase the book. I've read it a couple times. And are there a couple things you can give people just in a practical way? I'm, I'm running my business right now. I feel like I'm doing a lot of things, but I don't have discipline. How do I develop that? Give us a couple things we can can take away from today. Sure. And, and I appreciate you saying that. You know, so that was, that was my first book. My most recent book, it's called Big Little Breakthroughs, How Small Everyday Innovations drive oversized results. The reason I bring this up is that it's actually probably more applicable to entrepreneurs uh, than discipline dreaming. I certainly, there was some value in, in that first book too, but the reason I, I bring this up is there's actually a framework that I have in this book. I'm just pulling it up right now, right? Where I explore the eight core obsessions of everyday innovators, and they actually translate perfectly to entrepreneurs. 
real quickly, number one, fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Number two, start before you're ready. Number three, open a test kitchen, which is around a mindset of experimentation. Number four, break it to fix it, which is around disrupting assumptions and and challenging conventional wisdom rather than complying with it. Number five is reach for weird, which is sort of going out on a creative live and and trying things that are a little bit unorthodox. Uh, Number six is around using every drop of toothpaste, which is really a playful way of saying being scrappy and resourceful, something that all entrepreneurs need to do. Number seven, don't forget the dinner mint, which is around adding that little extra something, a little dose of creativity that can take your product or service or company to the next level. And then finally, number eight, fall seven times stand eight, which is around perseverance and tenacity and resilience. So I think actually that even though the book is focused around innovation, I think that provides a perfect model for entrepreneurs. And again, it's called Big Little Breakthroughs, How Small Everyday Innovations Drive Oversized Results. Yeah, so currently I'm doing this podcast, obviously, but also working with CEOs and entrepreneurs from a coaching perspective. And one of the things that is a very common thread in the coaching process is people are afraid to make the right decision. And so they don't make any decisions at all. And the thing I tell people is decisions create action, action creates feedback. It's the ability to read and react and continue to make progress is really what separates successful people from the ones that aren't. Would you agree with that? I think it's exactly right. And it's not like just some you know divine intervention, you being a super genius. It's about, like you said, the tenacity, adaptability, uh, taking on those challenges, following through and rinse and repeat. You know, it's, it's funny, the word entrepreneur sounds like some fancy French word where you're, you know, holding tea, sipping tea and white gloves, and there's lilies in the background. And it's more like a street fight. I mean, it's more like, you know, you, it's difficult, hard work, but through that perseverance, you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room, but a lot of the times you have to have, to have the most tenacity. And what are you doing now? So I, I know you have Mudita Ventures, you're still speaking. I see that on social media. And then you're also helping people that want to become keynote speakers. So I've watched several of your keynote speeches in the past. If you haven't seen Josh, you have to check him out because they're engaging, they're creative, they're inspirational, but they're also filled with a lot of takeaways for people that are very applicable as an entrepreneur. So in addition to Mudita Ventures, what are you doing now? Well, well, thanks for asking. You know, it's funny, I'm I'm probably working harder than I ever have and more hours than I ever have, but I do it because I love it, not because I have to. A lot of times someone asked me just yesterday about the notion of retirement. And if you're doing a job that you hate and you're punching the clock and trading your soul for money, for sure you want to retire. That's all you can think about. But if you're instead following your calling and pouring your heart into like solving tough challenges and, and making a difference in people's lives, you never want to retire. And I'm more in that second category, frankly. So I have three buckets of professional activity right now. I am the managing partner of Mudita Venture Partners. As mentioned, we invest in early stage uh, software companies. So that's you know, time consuming and you know, we're, we're, we're in it. We raised $40 million and we're, we're making investments across a wide range of interesting companies for the next generation of, of entrepreneurs and disruptors. The second bucket is, um, uh, is around innovation, my, my creativity, my passion. So I've written four books. I, I speak all over the world. I've done 1,200 keynotes around the world. And I, you know, this year I'll do 75 keynotes or whatever. So I, I really enjoy that. I, I enjoy sharing ideas. We also have a small consulting practice that, that helps uh, companies build a culture of innovation. So that's sort of bucket number two. And uh, bucket number three is one of the founding partners of a company called Impact 11, helping thought leaders take their impact, well, you guessed it, on a scale from one to 10, all the way to 11. 
And we help people launch and scale their speaking practice. We help them develop content. We help them build expertise that they can share on stage, but they can also share in podcasts or they can, you know, sort of thought leadership can manifest in a number of different ways in books and YouTube videos as an influencer. And so we're helping thought leaders, again, launch and scale their, their practice, ultimately to monetize their expertise. And so I, I get three full-time jobs, said more simply. <laughs> yeah, and you're not doing any of them in, uh, as a hobby. When I see you do something, you're all in. How do you balance those three things? Are, are you doing one thing a certain day? Is it about building the right team around you? How do you stay organized? Yeah, so it's that it's not you know Monday's Impact Eleven Day, Tuesday is Speaking Day. They are all kind of mushed together. The one thing that's kind of neat is they're all synergistic. So I might give a keynote to uh, Coca Cola, and then Coca Cola might have some like tech spin out that I can invest in, and then one of their leaders wants to become a thought leader, so they come to Impact Eleven. So each of the businesses that I'm involved in, are, there's some interconnectivity. They're not completely disparate. It's not like I'm selling life insurance and running an auto mechanic shop. Like they, they connect it in certain ways. But I think the answer to your question is is two things. It's compartmentalization. So like right now, I'm trying to be deeply present with you and we're hanging out and I, and I love our conversation. I'm not thinking about, oh, this investment deck that I got to read or some you know negotiation I'm involved in. So I think, you know, being able to compartmentalize is, is one important thing, really of all entrepreneurs. The other thing, and I know it sounds like cheesy, but it really is true. And you know this from being in sports is, is having great folks around you. I have a full-time CEO for my consulting firm. I have a full-time CEO for Impact 11. Uh, so we have you know, multiple full-time people in, in Mudita Venture Partners. And so because of that, I'm able to sort of bounce from one to the other, knowing that we have, you know, full-time people that are doing nothing but building each of those individual businesses. And I've got wonderful people around me that, that keep me on track and help me, help me move crazy things down the field. And so as we wrap up here, first of all, I encourage everyone to pick up Josh's most recent book, Big Little Breakthroughs. If you haven't seen him speak, go on YouTube. I know you have your website, joshlingner.com. What's the website for keynote speakers? If you want to share that with our audience as well. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's Impact 11. So just the word impact, I-M-P-A-C-T. And then 11 is spelled out, E-L-E-V-E-N. So impact11.com. And again, the whole notion is that people have an important message and they want to get it out to the world and ultimately want to monetize their ability and, and kind of perfect their stage skills and such. Uh, we, we might be able to be helpful. So happy to, to chat with anyone who's interested. Thank you, Josh. So as we started the podcast, and we can clean some of this up, but in conclusion, again, the purpose of the podcast is how to use life's experiences for you. Because like you said, you don't spend time focusing on the past, which can include and I know you've met these people you meet at a cocktail party or a networking reception. It's always, hey, I started this company in 1999. It's like, you need a new story. So even good experiences can weigh you down and prevent you from future progress. What's one thing that you've used to continue to push forward in your career? Well, as, as kind of calling back to our discussion earlier, you know, I, I said this phrase that we said at our company that, that someday a company is going to come along and put us out of business. It might as well be us. I apply that same principle personally. So the, the way that you translate that is, you know, someday someone's going to come along and put me out of business. So it might as well be me. So what I'm trying to try to do, and it's not easy and I'm not perfect, of course not, but like, how do you put the previous version of yourself out of business? About every six months. So what does the atom of six months from now look like that's going to render the current atom obsolete? And so it's sort of this, this notion of constant reinvention, not arriving in like, you know, success can be, you know, a really bad teacher because it, it reminds us that, hey, we're, we've, we've cracked the code. We don't need to change. 
And boy, nothing is further from the truth because the world is, is around us is changing at a rate like none other in history. And I think as leaders, as entrepreneurs, we have a calling to, to constantly find the next best version of ourselves. And that's a never-ending process. And that shouldn't be depressing. It should be exciting because we're always kind of finding and discovering another, another layer. That's what I try to do. Back to that white belt mentality, I try to never sit around saying, oh yeah, I've gotten all the success. I'll spike the ball if we have a win. That's awesome. But I'm, I'm always thinking about what's next and, and how do you how do you lean into change? And, and I, I, by the way, just personally, like I'm trying to take my my frailties head on. You know, I'm impatient sometimes. I'm judgmental at times. And, and I'm trying to look in the mirror and say, how can I be a better person? How can I have better character? How can I be a better dad? And so to me, that's exciting. That's what life is all about is, is this ongoing discovery of yourself and trying to shape yourself into a better version. And, and that's what I've, I've tried to do uh, the last 33 years in business. And I will continue to try to do going forward. Well, that's my takeaway for today is for Christmas, my gift to myself is going to be a new version of myself. So I'm setting a goal. I'll actually put it on my calendar. What did Adam look like six months ago? And what does he look like now? So I'm going to have my podcast. I'll be keynote speaking. I'm going to start a book and continue to inspire entrepreneurs. So Josh, I want to thank you for being on the House of Bricks podcast. Always a pleasure talking to you. It's hard to get in a room without you and or with you and and not learn something. So I've even learned more today. And I know our audience is going to benefit greatly from spending time with you. So I appreciate it. Adam, thank you. And thanks for doing this podcast. You're really giving a beautiful gift to the world and really helping people uh, elevate and shine. So, so thanks for that contribution. Thanks for our friendship and wishing you continued success. Thanks, Josh. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on today's episode of The House of Bricks. I want you to remember, success is not an overnight process. It's the ability to decide, read, react, and continue to make progress. That is what will help you build a strong foundation in your business and your life. If this podcast or any of our podcasts inspired you, we ask that you share it with the people you know, your friends, your family, your coworkers. You never know the ripple effect that your action of sharing this podcast could have on their journey. Thank you for spending time with us today. Stay tuned for future episodes with some of the world's greatest athletes, entrepreneurs, CEOs, business leaders, and much more. Look forward to seeing you again on the next episode of The House of Bricks.